We have 500 million in the forecast allowance. Uh, we projected uh, this court case could have an impact of 400 million dollars, um, but ICBC is looking at options to be able to mitigate the court uh, decision. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith, and I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Welcome to another podcast. That's Finance Minister Carol James this week speaking at her quarterly report on the budget. And Rob, the budget's still balanced, at least for now. Yeah, it's still balanced, but uh, the finance minister is clinging to a surplus that's shrinking. It's like that little action movie where the hero's hanging onto the ledge and the ledge is crumbling from them and they're hanging over the precipice of the... Yeah, that's, that's basically what Carol James <laughs> is doing with his budget right now. So you remember back in the February budget, we had a projected $274 million surplus for the coming year. Right. That has been dropping steadily. We are down now down to $148 million surplus projection on a $58 billion budget. Now, if you were to take this and do kind of rough approximate sort of like um, analogy on how thin this might be in your household budget, if you're taking home $1,000 on a paycheck and you look at the kind of what uh, what the surplus would mean in that terms on, on an ordinary paycheck, you're looking at 2 or $3 of your $1,000 yeah, yeah. paycheck. Very narrow. Very, very narrow. It's 0.26% of the provincial budget is now the surplus. So it's a yeah. pretty... Uh, razor thin margin, as we often talk about here. But, uh, on the good side, we have a provincial economy that's doing well. We have a uh, low unemployment rate. We still have growth in BC's economy projected, although it's not as, as growing as much as previously thought. So that's good. On the bad side, we have some tax, um, some, uh, tax issues, especially in the forestry sector, which is collapsing and the forestry revenues are going down. And we have uh, a lot of issues related to ICBC, which we talk about all the time on the podcast. But again, remember the court hit on ICBC losing its court case on medical experts is four to five hundred million dollars. And the finance minister, as you heard her kind of say on the introduction there, Yes, ICBC could cost us 400 million. We still have 500 million in our contingency, uh, in our forecast allowance and uh, 550 million in our contingency. So that's about a billion dollars in what we would call the rainy day piggy bank that you can smash in case of emergency. Right. So she's got a cushion there. But it, 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 she said it's her worst case scenario that ICBC ends up costing her budget half of her contingency and just kind of wiped out because that money's needed for other things like, uh, you know, pressures on uh, social services and uh, emergency funding for government for flooding or fires and that type of stuff. So you can't just get rid of it. You can't empty out the entire piggy bank. You got to hold on to some of it. So it's a, another example of why the government has no money, why it's very cautious about how much it's spending, why the BC Teachers Federation, who wants a more lucrative contract, we heard Carol James say, the mandate is the mandate on that translation. You're not getting a lucrative contract. You're getting what we offer you. Right. There's no more money to put on the bargaining table for the teachers. Yeah. And it's, you know, these quarterly updates are a little bit boring, but you got to keep them in context because this is the thread that permeates all the discussions on every topic we have on the podcast. The government has no money. Yeah. It is desperate to keep the budget balanced, uh, despite arguments from some people that maybe let it slip into deficit and free up the spending. Nope. That's not what the finance minister wants to do. And uh, the trend lines are not great for BC. They're not catastrophic, but they're not great in terms of, uh, of softening of economic growth here. I think keeping the budget balanced has become kind of a political priority for the Horgan government, because I think what Horgan's reelection message will be down the road is that we're a pragmatic government. Uh, we did not cave in to the unions. 
We have kept the budget balanced. The economy is still ticking along nicely. That's his re-election message, right? If, and even if he slips into the red just a little bit, it gives the liberals a talking point and an opening to attack, attack them saying, hey, we handed you guys like a $2 billion surplus and you blew it. And now we're back in the red. So he wants to avoid that, even if it means just slipping slightly into the red, if they can at all avoid that and keep the, keep the budget in the black. I think that's the priority for ICBC. Yeah. That continues to be a problem. When, when would they book that loss? Well, I guess, you know, because now they're going to try and do a do over on this. ICBC thing they're doing where they're trying to ban the use of or at least limit the use of expert evidence in ICBC court cases to cut costs that got thrown out by the courts. But now they're going to try and bring it back a different way right through legislation. Yeah, they should be booking it now. The only reason they're not booking it now is because uh, ICBC has yet to figure out the exact figure, according to Carol James, uh, which is a polite way of saying we're giving them enough time to find other savings in ICBC so that the figure they come back to us with is not $400 million. Because as you huh. mentioned, government's not appealing this court decision. They're going to legislate going forward. And try and do it a different way. So huh? they're still taking the loss Because before here. they did it through regulation, right? Yeah, for they their cabinet yeah. order. Yeah. Right. So it's a it's a problem for the government. Uh, one of the other interesting things in the, <laughs> in the financial update is the fact that we're actually not making uh, very much money on cannabis. Yeah. And this is an old joke John Horgan, the premier, has made. Only in British Columbia can the government fail to sell weed and make a profit. But here we are, well, almost a year into the legalization of cannabis, and you look at the financial picture, and in fact, uh, we're way off our projections, $18 million less in cannabis sales than we thought, mainly because of the slow rollout of the stores and the fact that people still are not buying as much product as uh, maybe the government thought. Maybe they're buying it still from their their black market contacts. It's one of the reasons why I think you're seeing the government now move a little bit more aggressively to shut down illegal marijuana stores. Right. You know, so you, we've seen some raids and that kind of thing with Mike Farm. This ministry is the, it's called the Community Safety uh, Branch Flying Squad, uh, going and shutting down these illegal pot shops. You may see them uh, that increase as well in the days ahead. Yeah, the old pot police out there yeah. knocking some doors down. Uh, on a different topic, Smitty, you had a couple fascinating columns this week, and uh, let's talk about the first one here. You did a column which was very interesting about liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson and some musings that he did on a telephone uh, town hall with some members about exactly how he is going to address the NDP's tax issues. And it's an interesting point because to go back to our other topic about the the budget update, the liberal response to that is that the NDP is basically funding its budget on 19 different new taxes that they right. brought in, and they're taxing and taxing and taxing and spending that money. And the question on the town hall was, what are you going to do, Andrew Wilkinson, about taxes? And pick it up from there. What was the okay. response there? This is really interesting because Wilkinson was asked basically a question on one of his favorite topics, which is these... NDP tax hikes, and he's counted 19 of them. So as you said, so 19 new or increased taxes under this government. And this is one of the things that Wilkinson's going to beat like a bass drum all the way to the election, right? Like we got to lower taxes. So the question in this telephone town hall was about one specific tax, the employer health tax, which we've talked about on the podcast in the past as well. This is the one that is imposed on it's a payroll tax on employers if your payroll is more than $490,000 a year now the government is saying well we set that threshold so we're only going to go after big business 
or medium-sized business, not small business. So if you have a payroll under 490000 you don't have to pay this tax. But a lot of business people will tell you, even with a four, like a $500,000 payroll, that's still a small business. Like you could have a 10 employees and hit that payroll. So there's a lot of anger about this tax, and Wilkinson's been very critical of it. Anyway, long-winded uh, <laughs> introduction to this clip. He's asked, what will you do about it? Are you going to eliminate this employer payroll tax? Here's what he said. So we're going to have to have an overview of the entire slate of NDP taxes. We don't want to get drawn into the NDP trick of saying, oh, we'll go after one tax out of 19. We've got to say the whole slate of taxes needs to be reviewed so we can have a much more competitive regime. And it's going to be hard for us to figure out the details until we're in government. And once we're there, you can bet your bottom dollar we're going to heavily review small business taxation to make sure that people can prosper in B.C. and not be taxed to death. Okay, I draw your attention to the very end there, Rob, where he said, we're not going to get into an NDP trick of telling you what taxes we're going to cut or what taxes we're going to eliminate. What we're going to do instead is a big review of all these taxes. Then we'll tell you what we're going to do. And the interesting thing that jumped out at me was he suggested it would be after the election because he said there, well, we might have to get into government first before we can figure out all the details here. So that jumped out at me like, are you really? Like, are you really telling me that you're not going to tell voters what taxes you would eliminate or reduce or change before an election? Like, are you kidding me? So I went up to him and kind of asked him about that. And I couldn't really pin him down. He was kind of still ducking and dodging on it, saying, well, we're going to do this review. And then I said, yeah, but are you going to tell people before the election if you're going to cut this tax? And he said, well, you know, I think that voters deserve a very clear picture of what a government would do. That's the best I could get out of him. I would not get a specific commitment out of him that he would say exactly what he's going to do. But he said, you know, <laughs> got to be clear with the voters about what your plan is. So it. The thing to keep in mind is this is a tax that brings in almost two billion bucks a year, right? And it replaced the medical services plan premiums, which are very unpopular. Mm -hmm. So if you eliminate it or reduce it, that obviously knocks a big hole in your budget. And then where do you get the money? So reminds, he's, he'll be under more pressure on this. Reminds me of the 2017 uh, election campaign and an infamous uh, exchange with the liberals on uh, if you're going to get rid of MSP, uh, how are you going to pay for that when they tried to match the NDP's uh, MSP budget change? I remember a young, uh, shaggy-haired journalist from the province uh, clashing with uh, uh, Michael Dion QC, the finance minister, at, oh, yeah. a, at an event in the. Uh, it, it is very common for parties in you know elections to kind of be vague sometimes about their promises, but there's sure. no way that the Liberals can go through the next election without identifying the taxes they're going to cut. I think the problem that you, you hit on the problem is they can't just say they're going to get rid of the employer health tax because it's too much money. So how do you make up that money somewhere? And that's the kind of thing where you're going to get a lot of hedging, a lot of uh, dancing during the election campaign. And then when the uh, party comes into government, then they start doing these reviews and they start trying to find the money because they have no idea how they're going to pay for it. But it, it is not... 
it's not the kind of thing that uh, that Andrew Wilkinson wants uh, people to think that he doesn't have a plan. And uh, it was a pretty damaging, I thought, kind of comment for him to to not be able to handle when you asked him some questions about it. Yeah, and 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 Carol James, the finance minister, went after him on it as well, saying, "You be straight with the public, tell them the truth about what exactly you're going to do. Don't try to hide it." So basically, suggesting maybe the Liberals have got some kind of hidden agenda on this kind of thing. So that could be a, a kind of a theme going forward. But the the reason this is kind of tricky, I think, for Wilkinson is obviously he loves to attack attack NDP tax hikes. I mean, that's kind of politics 101 stuff. People hate paying taxes, so he's going to hate hate taxes too and attack it fiercely. But the inevitable question is, well, what are you going to do? Because if you eliminate or reduce these taxes, are you going to bring in a different tax? Like, would you bring back medical services plan premiums in some form? Or would you cut government spending uh, to make up for the lost revenue, in which case, what are you going to cut? What programs are you going to cut? Or are you going to run deficit budgets? I mean, here you are attacking the NDP for maybe being on the verge of going in the red. Well, where are you going to get the money to balance the budget? So, you know, he's going to have some an- questions to answer here. And, uh, I mean, there are some taxes I think we can forecast the Liberals will demand be uh, eliminated. The speculation tax is one yeah. that they've – but that doesn't generate as much revenue at all. So it's it's an easy – um, an attack for the liberals to say we're going to get rid of that and maybe a couple of the other ones. But the constituency of the liberal party is the small to medium to even large sized businesses that are hit by the employer health tax. Those businesses are pressuring the liberals to say that they're going to get rid of it. And the liberals want to say that they're going to get rid of it, but they don't know how to pay for it. So you get stuck in this vague little world where Andrew Wilkinson's trying to split hairs on what he's going to do and when he's going to do it and how he's going to do it. And it doesn't look good on them. And the other, the other thing is that opposition parties are sometimes hesitant to bring out their exact plans until an election. Because if he was to say, here's 12 of the taxes I'm going to eliminate now, it gives a lot of time for the governing party with its army of spin doctors and and little people in uh, windowless cubicles to develop attack lines on uh, Andrew Wilkinson and, and, and just destroy his plan. So opposition parties tend to wait until an election before unveiling their plan because otherwise the might of the governing party lands on them like a hammer. Well, speaking of some of those spin doctors, a few of them phoned me up this week to complain about oh. the column I wrote saying like, come on, we're like possibly two years out from another election. You really don't expect us to be laying out our platform now, do you? They, they thought it was a bit unfair. Still... I think for Wilkinson to be out there and hammering these taxes, you got to answer the question, what would you do? So we'll see. Another interesting column. Walk us through this one. We have a very little known backbench liberal MLA by the name of John Martin from Chilliwack. An interesting fellow, even if most people don't know who he is, uh, barbecue master, martial artist, uh, if you can believe it. He looks like um, kind of a little professor from a college, which he actually is. You know, he's yeah. a short guy with glasses and a little tweed jacket. He's a criminologist by trade, but uh, kind of a, an interesting character. His storyline goes way, way back to the days of the BC Conservative Party when it was making a it was making an attack on the BC Liberals and Christy Clark before the 2013 election. And John Martin was a BC Conservative candidate when it looked like we were going to have um, you know a conservative threat, and he defected from the party joined the BC Liberals, won his seat, and uh, now he's in the news uh, and in your column, Smitty, over his future, maybe yeah. continuing with the Liberals. And what were you hearing there? Well, what's happened in Chilliwack is, which, by the way, is a pretty safe Liberal seat, and he should win easily uh, re-election. But 
only if he can secure the nomination to be the candidate again. Now, typically, an incumbent MLA doesn't really have to go through a nomination challenge. Uh, usually, they're kind of they've got a political machine on the ground. They're a known quantity. No one's challenging them for the nomination. They get it automatically. If someone were to challenge them, usually they've got such a strong organization in their home ridings that they can easily swat down any kind of upstart challenge. The problem with John Martin is he's now been challenged for the liberal nomination in Chilliwack by a pretty high-profile former local city councillor. Her name is Diane Jansen. She's also the former chair of the school board in Chilliwack. And if you take a look at the resume, her resume, it's, uh, you know, a mile long list of community organizations and groups that she's been active with on the, on the chair of the, or she's on the board of the hospice society and every service club in town and done a lot of charity work and very well connected public figure in Chilliwack. And she has now said, I want to be the liberal MLA. So she's challenging Martin for the job, for the nomination. I don't think he can win it because mm. I even spoke to his former campaign manager who told me that, well, I kind of like Diane Jansen and I got a lot of respect for her and I'm not opposed to a nomination process here. Mm. So even his local people are kind of maybe not standing up with him. And critically, the party is not going to protect him either. So I spoke to Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader, and asked him, you know, would he would he order the party to protect this guy is as the uh, incumbent MLA. And he said, no, we've got a process for a reason. He's going to have to go through the nomination process and I'm staying out of it. And he did. He did say John's done a good job. Um, I'm satisfied with his work. But as you said, he has been very low profile. I was amazed. I read your column and I and, you know, I mean, you and I cover this thing every day, this this crazy world of politics. And I was still surprised when I read it that he's the labor critic for the opposition. <laughs> the labor critic in the middle of a massive labor strife, the worst never labor strife of the NDP government. I didn't even know he was the critic. You, he's basically dead silent. Yeah, I mean, I don't see him showcased in question period by the by the liberals. He, his seat in the legislature is way, way in the back. So nowhere near sitting with Wilkinson. Another complaint I've heard about him is that he spends too much time grilling steaks and not grilling the NDP because he's a barbecue champion. He he competes on like barbecue uh, competitive circuits. If you ever want a great ribs, you know, or a steak or something, this is the guy to talk to, you know. Like if they had a barbecuing contest, he'd win hands down. I don't think he can win a nomination contest, I think is the problem. Right. So I've heard some people complain like, this guy spends too much time barbecuing. And that's that's the problem. He hasn't spent enough time organizing his, his political operation in Chilliwack. He's spending too much time, you know, barbecuing ribs and steaks. If you go on his Twitter feed, it's, you know, it's all these <laughs> these beautiful mouthwatering kind of porn, almost pornographic shots of like f ribs and steaks and chicken. And yeah. I'm telling you, this guy knows how to barbecue. Do you think this is part of the larger thing we talk about where the liberals are trying to renew within the party and with some MLAs like Linda Reed trying to push them out the door by saying, look, we are not protecting you anymore. We are not going to have the leader appoint you as the candidate. You got to fight it out. And the hope is that some of these um, lesser known, less impressive uh, uh, liberal MLAs disappear and the party gets kind of renewed with new candidates. Do you think that? Yes, is I do. I do think that. And I think that they would never admit that on the record. But 
you know, even in my discussion with Wilkinson, he was saying, like, oh, no, John's doing a good job, and I'm staying out of this. I, you know, he's got to go and fight his own battles and, and win this nomination. If they really wanted to protect them, they could take some steps to protect them. But I actually think they'd probably want maybe a more effective MLA in there. Although that said, you know, I kind of like the guy. I'm not saying anything bad about him. Yeah, he's a nice enough guy. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I, I've interviewed him many times over the years back when he was a criminology professor and stuff, and he had a lot of interesting perspectives. Cri- criminology professor yeah. at the same University of the Fraser Valley is another MLA. Oh, Oh, now you've put your finger on something. Because, yes, he is friends with Daryl Pluckus, I understand. Who was a criminologist at the University of the Fraser yes. Valley. So they were yes. co-professors. Yes. And this is not winning a many friends in the Liberal Party either. Mm-hmm. Because they hate Pluckus. Pluckus is, of course, former Liberal MLA who took the Speaker's job against the orders of Christy Clark. And, you know, as you've documented in your in your terrific book on the fall of Christy Clark, that was like... Available on Amazon.ca and all Absolutely, their fine book everyone should, Yeah, wonderful Christmas gift, by the way. And, uh, you know, when he took the Speaker's job, it effectively neutralized a liberal vote in the legislature and allowed the NDP Green Alliance to form government. Mm-hmm. So they've never forgiven him, Plekis, for that. In fact, they kicked him out of the Liberal Party for it. And I'm told reliably, and I know for a fact that uh, John Martin is pals with uh, Plekis. And that's that's well known in the liberal ranks. And it's another reason maybe why they're not... Maybe not not that unhappy to see him being challenged. It was interesting in in the book, which I encourage you to go buy. It, uh, uh, but we all, we do detail <laughs> how remember Christy Clark's final moments as liberal leader at a caucus meeting in Penticton, where Daryl Plekis was behind the scenes maneuvering to quit the party, and uh, announced that he no longer had confidence in Christy Clark, and she didn't really want to go out that way, so she ended up quitting first. Uh, and John Martin, as a friend of Daryl Plekis, was involved in going to Christy Clark's hotel room at the caucus meeting and trying to talk to her and trying to bring Plekis down. Everyone was trying to bring Plekis back into line, get him off of this move to defect from the party and blast out a press release criticizing Christy Clark. And he actually aligned with Christy Clark and not Daryl Plekis. But to no avail, Christy uh, ended up resigning. Daryl went off and became speaker. And now John Martin is just kind of, you know, still friends with Daryl Plekis, despite the fact that all, almost all liberals really hate the guy. So he's he's an interesting character because he came from outside the liberals. He was a conservative. He came into the liberals. He was an asset for them as a kind of right wing credential guy at a time when the party was facing an attack by the conservatives. And now over a couple terms, he's he's kind of gone back to being maybe someone that the liberals aren't as interested in protecting as some of their other candidates. So <clears throat> maybe maybe he'll surprise us and win that nomination anyway. But I, the impression I get is that he hasn't worked hard enough to uh, set up a strong uh a strong riding association to to win it, and the, and this woman who's challenged him is uh, very well connected, and she's she's organizing early. Like we said earlier, we're still we're still potentially two years out from an election, right? Although it could come earlier, but she's signing up members now. So that's a very serious challenge, and I, I suspect he's going to lose there. Well, the Liberals did uh, put out a press release saying that they are opening their nomination process <laughs> right. for, I think, 20 different ridings, uh, mostly ridings that they don't hold and have very little hope of winning. They're starting with the candidates for those. But it's an interesting position for the Liberals to be in because they feel like some of the really bright, young, new, fresh faces that they want to run for the party have to go into these no-hope ridings that are NDP-held ridings and basically become cannon fodder where they're going to lose because MLAs who are in safe ridings stay there forever and you can't get rid of them. And so one of the problems the Liberals are having is do we force out MLAs in safe ridings who've been in, in the legislature for many, many years 
And wouldn't it make more sense to put the young, really interesting, fresh candidates in those ridings so they can win rather than burning them out as just losing in ridings like that the Liberals like, will never win? How about Richmond? I mean, you got Linda Reed stepping down That's there, right. right? There's and a there's, perfect example of, yeah. Of, yeah. So uh, speaking of the Labour file, which is technically uh, John Martin's file, although you wouldn't know it by reading <laughs> his Twitter feed, um, we had some developments on the Labour file. And we were talking about the NDP being in a real jam on these strikes. It has turned out now uh, that the strike has been averted for Metro Vancouver bus drivers. There's a deal reached at the very last minute, 1230 in the morning, uh, just hours before the strike was set to take effect. So that is, uh, I think, a win for the New Democrats who didn't have to get involved. They maintained that they were not going to do anything there, that that had to be a deal struck between um, the, the employer and the bus drivers, and it did. And so they're they're able to kind of brush that one off. That would have been a huge political problem for the NDP, a transit strike. We mentioned on last week's podcast that the Saanich uh, QP uh, support workers who'd closed school for three weeks with a strike, they got a deal without the intervention of the provincial government. So those are two big steps forward for uh, the NDP. They're able to, to justly say, I think, that they... They handled that by staying out of it. They didn't bring any hammers down. Now the question is, you've still got the BC teachers and yeah. you have also SkyTrain workers, which are a separate uh, organization, uh, a union, uh, talking about a strike as well. So it, they're not out of the woods, but I think for the New Democrats, the best possible outcome deals, no major labor disruption, and they're able to say, you know what? collective bargaining works and that's why we stay out of it i agree i mean i think they're a big sigh of relief here from the government that these two big fires have been put out the uh the potential looming strike by the bus drivers in metro vancouver and also that sandwich school strike that you mentioned so i think the government would have been forced to intervene in both of those strikes if they had gone on and we saw the big guns come out in that uh Metro Vancouver Transit situation. The president of the Unifor Union there, Jerry Dias, how do you pronounce his last name? Dias, something yes. like that. Yep. He he flew in and sort of took control of the situation. The president of the Trans TransLink was in there as well. So you saw the big guns come out, and I think maybe that's indicative of maybe the government was working some back channels here, you know, desperately trying to get the two sides talking. So that's a good thing. And for the Liberals, though. You know, the liberals have been saying around, what are you doing to solve this bus strike? This is going to be awful. We've got to prevent this bus strike from happening. And now that now it's been solved and they're probably secretly going, damn it. Oh, <laughs> no, we wanted the strike to actually go ahead. Well, they got one. That, that's one of the weird things in politics. I guess it's not weird is they want the opposite of what they actually say. Right. right. You know, the liberals wanted this strike to go forward. <laughs> they wanted to see chaos. They wanted to pin the chaos on the blame for it on the NDP. You know, that's what they wanted. And now it's been solved. And they're probably saying, well, that's a good thing. And publicly, but behind the scenes, they're going, damn it. Well, the we wanted that strike. The liberals have quickly switched tactics to now focusing on the University of Northern BC. <laughs> okay. Where, still where got the, that one. They still got that one. There's a strike <laughs> there. And it is uh, classes have been closed a week, yep. maybe coming on two weeks, at least a week now. And that is actually one where Harry Baines, the labor minister, has moved. He appointed a mediator. Uh, just the other day. Uh, and that is a power that he has as a labor minister. He didn't do it in the other situations, uh, partly because he said he wanted the he wants parties to ask for provincial help, not him swoop in and, and demand it and kind of impose it. So the liberals are still going to attack on that, saying there's people out of classes in uh, Prince George and that type of thing, although that's not a riding the New Democrats represent. And as we've said in the podcast before, when it comes to interior and northern issues, the NDP is quite happy to just sit it out because they hear 
nothing, see nothing, and know nothing about that part of the province. They have no MLAs there. That's why the Liberals wanted this uh, crippling, devastating strike in Metro Vancouver and transit, because it would have affected a lot of swing, closely contested ridings that they could win back if they could pin the blame on the NDP. Yeah. Uh, the, the other big, the big one, though, is the teachers, right, where that's going to go. And I suppose that'll probably go into the new year here be, with still a lot of saber rattling before we get down to any kind of... Well, the, the New Democrats got through a weekend convention here in Victoria where the uh, uh, the Teachers Federation had a basically a, a special meeting right next door in the adjoining uh, lobby and conference room of the same hotel. Yeah. And uh, that was very awkward for the NDP. And yet... They got out. Uh, they got out of that convention without any uh, massive problems. Well, and you know what? I had some NDP insiders say to me, uh, "We were happy that the BCTF didn't invade the convention and, and put up a bigger fuss." And they thought that the the unions, the people from the teachers union and the and the teachers union president Terry Mooring were actually pretty polite, and everything went pretty well. They were expecting more trouble. And they were actually relieved they didn't get it. Where are the teachers going to go? Who else are they going to turn to? What are you going to do? Vote liberal? Yeah, they got. I mean, the end, at the end of the day, the NDP has that in their back pocket. They're like, you stick with us because uh, maybe we can win another term. You don't want to well, yeah. take us off too badly. You don't want to. You know, we're better friends than we are enemies. Who, yeah. who else are you going to vote for? And well, then, yeah, that, that's one of the talking points for them for sure. Like, hey, you know, we can't give away the store in this round of bargaining. But what do you think the liberals would do? You're only. We're your only bet here. You get us, give us a second term. Yeah, and then when the and the next contract comes around, then maybe you get a better deal, right? Yeah, yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting times. Thanks for listening this week. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, all the other podcast formats. Read Mike Smith in the Province and myself in the Sun, and uh, follow us both on Twitter. We'll be back to chat with you next week. See you then. <laughs>